Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we're continuing our series on politics in California in the 1850s. We're going to be wrapping up our section on Democrats before moving next to Whigs and Republicans. Let's get started. One of the most interesting phenomenons about democratic politics in California in the 1850s is how Southern Democrats, also known as SHIVs, who were outnumbered by all other political groups in California by a wide margin, were able to maintain power in the state. While it is true to say that immigration tended to move laterally across the United States with northern-leaning Democrats concentrating in the northern half of California and southern-leaning Democrats ending up in Southern California, the Northern and Southern halves did not immigrate in equal numbers. Shiv Democrats were just outnumbered. So it wasn't demographics that gave them power. Instead, many people, including our previous guest, Dr. Kevin Waite, contend that it was the power of individual politicians that were able to maintain control in spite of numbers using two main factors. First, that they were first the prime mover advantage and then political savvy and spoils. And these are the two areas that we will look at now. There was no more important and influential politician in the Southern wing of the Democratic Party in California than William Gwynn. We covered Gwynn briefly in previous episodes, but here is a simple refresher about him. Gwynn was born in Gallatin, Tennessee, the son of a reverend who also served as a chaplain under Andrew Jackson. Like his father, Gwen attended medical school and practiced medicine until he became a law enforcement officer in Mississippi. Like many of his contemporaries, he went west and became fabulously wealthy due to success working a gold mine on land that he had purchased in an area called Paloma, California. Upon gaining wealth, Gwen immediately began politically organizing, trying to replicate the southern wing of the Democratic Party in California. He was elected to the U.S. Senate before the admission of California as a state and held power for nearly a decade. Now let's discuss some of the major projects of Gwynn's term in the U.S. Senate, some of which are directly related to California and others he was involved in at the national level. Let's begin with his role in California's admission to the Union. He saw population growth and the economic boon that California would be to the Union and used that to move the negotiations forward rapidly for its introduction as a state. Gwynn was a savvy politician and knew how to work deals with his friends and adversaries. While being pro-slavery himself, he saw that California's admission as a free state meant that anti-slavery legislators would be forced to compromise on other areas, which, of course, if you remember the Compromise of 1850, led to slavery being allowed to continue in other territories in the West. Consequently, Gwynn faced criticisms from both wings and the Whigs as he sought to create a compromise, working closely with political operatives as the famous Henry Clay. In addition to bringing California into the Union as a state, Gwynn also sought to connect it to the rest of the country. Some claim, probably falsely, that Gwynn was the first person to propose a railroad connecting the East Coast to the Best Coast, but that seems unlikely or perhaps just a legend. However, we do know that Gwynn proposed in 1853 to provide federal funding for a survey of the land where a railroad could be built. 
After that, a series of surveys were conducted with federal funding, and ultimately legislation was passed in 1862 to allow two railroad companies, the Union Pacific and the Central Pacific, to construct lines. Ultimately, Gwynn, while not part of central to these efforts, was certainly an early promoter and advocate. Lastly, on the federal front, Gwynn played a role in improving and modernizing the Navy in the United States. He served as the chairman of the Senate Committee on Naval Affairs, which means that he dealt with appropriations and advocated for modernizing the Navy in many ways, both in helping finance infrastructure projects as well as surveying the Pacific Coast. Beyond his work at the national level, Gwynn also advocated for many improvements and programs in California. Gwynn played an active role in working with President Fillmore to get legislation through Congress to establish a mint in California to streamline the process of creating coinage. If you remember from previous episodes, Wells Fargo, originally before the mint existed in California, would buy people's gold and then literally transport that gold to the mint in Philadelphia which was both time-consuming and expensive. While we can't attribute all or even most of the credit to Gwynn, this was an important move to accelerate California's growth. Gwynn also had his hand in internal improvements, particularly in areas related to water and land. We mentioned in previous episodes that Gwynn played an instrumental role in the Land Commission, not only getting it passed through Congress, but also in its maintenance as well. In many ways, Gwynn was the political mastermind and mover, and those aligned with his agenda were rewarded with plum federal positions, working with government organizations like the Mint or the Land Commission, or got other federal jobs. The loyalty produced by this spoil system would insulate him and allow him to maintain power as a political minority in a state that did not have many like-minded people like him left. Gwynn's allegiance to the Southern cause ultimately, in particular his support for Southern secession, would lead to his imprisonment and his choice to abscond to Europe during major portions of the Civil War. Gwynn got himself involved, interestingly, in plots with the Emperor of France, Napoleon III, who, under the guise of trying to retrieve debts that were owed to Great Britain, Spain, and France, plotted an invasion of Mexico. That is a long and fascinating story, Certainly worth reading about, but slightly off topic here in a rabble trail that will distract us from our larger objectives in this episode. Now let's meet Gwen's rival and sometime friend, David Broderick. Broderick came from a very different context to Gwen, even though he was born in the South. Broderick's parents were Irish immigrants. When he was three, his family moved from Washington, D.C. to New York City. He attended public schools in New York before being apprenticed to a stonecutter, which is one of those long-lost occupations that's fascinating to read about. Essentially, the job was to handle and cut stone for interior and exterior construction. He was also a bare-knuckled boxer, enjoying a good fight and the attention he could gather by being involved in one. Broderick got involved in politics early like Gwynn, but had less success losing his first electoral run for the House seat to a Whig politician. Broderick went west chasing wealth and riches, and arriving in California, he went into the smelting and assaying business, smelting being the business of using heat to extract a base metal, like gold, and assaying being the process of testing purity and quality. These were both the main functions of a mint, 
and they also helped the process of commercial transactions. These early mint operations were private enterprises and thus open to the possibility of corruption and malfeasance. Broderick apparently engaged in a form of skimming by putting $8 worth of gold in $10 coins. Broderick consequently became extremely wealthy through this scam and channeled his accumulated resources into buying land and supporting political campaigns. The combination of wealth and ingenuity vaulted Broderick into politics just months after he began his political activities. He was elected to the state senate in January of 1850 after the resignation of another senator. In just a year, his politicking launched him into the position of leadership in the senate, becoming the president before then leaving the legislature and becoming lieutenant governor. Then, later, Broderick would be elected as senator for California and assumed that office in 1857. Now, there are some areas where Broderick's interests aligned with Gwynn's and some areas where they parted. First, both men were equally interested in extending rail lines to California to accelerate the growth and the development of the West. They both held racist beliefs and believed in taking land from indigenous people and giving it to their fellow white Americans. However, slavery would be the crux of their division and would ultimately lead to both of their demises. The first area, though, of dispute between Gwynn and Broderick's wings of the Democratic Party were about political appointments. One of Gwynn's strategies, as we mentioned before, to maintain power in California is similar to the ways that political machines maintain power across the United States, spoils and appointments. Gwynn used his power in the Senate to create plum positions for his friends and political allies. He maintained strong relationships with the president and important federal officials, such that he could effectively appoint whoever he wanted to positions at places like the Federal Mint, for example. Obviously, one of the outcomes of appointing your friends or people whose only qualifications are their shared political allegiance meant that some of the people that he appointed to positions lacked skills or qualifications for these posts. This is where the disputes between Broderick's wing of the party and Gwynn's originated, and then it inevitably moved to black rights and slavery. Frustrated by Gwynn's control of the levers of power in California, Broderick resorted to blocking Shiv efforts to protect and or expand slavery. For example, Broderick worked hard to block legislative efforts to block black people from migrating to the state. Gwynn retaliated by obstructing Broderick's bid for a Senate position, which he wanted earlier on than the 1857 date in which he eventually became a senator. There were further disputes over things like the division of California into northern and southern states and fugitive slave laws. The dispute between the wings, but specifically Broderick and Gwynn, escalated with the passing of the Kansas-Nebraska Act. This act effectively revoked the Missouri Compromise, allowing slavery below the determined line of separation. All of the free states in the North rejected the Kansas-Nebraska Act, seeing it as a slippery slope to the expansion of slavery across the West. Gwynn led the charge to endorse this controversial legislation, not in any formal or legal capacity, but as a performative act to demonstrate to his allies in the South that at least at the state level of government, California was opposed to the anti-slavery agenda of the North. Broderick vociferously rejected this legislation and made some speeches against it, but he was ultimately outvoted. 
The level of animosity in California between these two wings of the Democratic Party was high, and naturally that led to violence. It is certainly strange to think about the fact that dueling used to be quite common in the United States, and was even accepted as a practice for settling heated disputes. Many of us probably think about the famous duel between Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr as the duel that changed the American political landscape forever. Our modern minds think it is deeply strange that the practice was permitted and embraced just 200 years ago. We tend to think, kind of inductively, that it was rare, but it was actually quite common and was generally accepted as a practice to settle scores. Dueling originated in Europe, where nobles would settle disputes in hand-to-hand -hand combat. It was believed that God had already picked the victor in the fight based on who was the, on the right side of the dispute, and thus the violence was effectively justified as a way to determine what God already believed. The practice evolved over time such that there were literally codified rules for everything from the time of day to the number of shots. For those who just watched the new John Wick film, like myself, these are probably fresh in your mind. Not that the rules in the movie are the same, but at least the movie does show the level of respect for procedure, which was true in actual historical context. Interestingly, and somewhat counterintuitively, choosing to duel with pistols was often the safest option, as they were much less accurate and therefore less lethal than using something like a saber. Not everyone appreciated dueling or so, or saw it as a value for society. Its most famous critics included Benjamin Franklin and George Washington. Nonetheless, it continued to be practiced for many years after Hamilton succumbed to his wounds. Returning to Broderick, who was a bare-knuckled boxer in New York, he was used to using violence to help him solve conflicts. Duels were something that, was that he was comfortable with as well. In 1852, Broderick barely survived a duel where his life was literally spared by a pocket watch in his breast pocket. Ultimately, Broderick, who chased conflict throughout his life, met his demise at the hands of another politician with no-nothing leanings, David S. Terry. Terry, who had become the fourth Chief Justice of the state of California and who ran on the nativist know-nothing ticket, would end Broderick's promising career. Terry was born in Kentucky in 1823, and his family relocated to Texas when Terry was eight. Terry studied law with his uncle and then enlisted in the Army during the Mexican-American War. And he participated, in fact, in the famous Battle of Monterey. He initially tried his hand at politics in Texas and was unsuccessful, which led him to move west and chase gold like everyone else we've been meeting recently. Eventually, he found his way to politics and the nativist beliefs of the Know-Nothing Party. The conflict with Broderick and Terry had deep roots in ideology and ad hominem attacks, but it reached its climax when, at a political convention, Terry accused Broderick of being an ally of Frederick Douglass. Terry resigned his post on the state Supreme Court in preparation for a duel that had been decided with Broderick following these public accusations. Their first attempt at a duel was disrupted by law enforcement, but they met the second day with a crowd of 80 people. Using French pistols, they marched 10 paces, and Terry's gun actually fired before they reached the end of their count. He claimed, and we don't know the truth of this, that the gun misfired. But either way, Broderick was dead, and he didn't have a chance to defend himself. This event caused the chasm between the two 
wings of the Democratic Party to widen to such an extreme that they almost seemed like two different parties, such that the anti-slavery wing found itself increasingly more aligned with the growing Republican movement. Hopefully this episode has illustrated that California was really a microcosm of the greater political and societal divisions, and we can see that through looking at the Democratic Party. Additionally, it hopefully illustrated the power of personality and individual force in creating and maintaining institutions. Gwynn's power and pull created an, an institutional stranglehold on the state government, which created resentment among the other wing, which led to the ultimate implosion and opened the door for new leaders. If you're interested in learning more about this subject, I would encourage you to listen to my interview with Dr. Kevin Waite and buy his book, West of Slavery, which sets all of this in a broader context of the history of the West. In our next episode, we'll look at Whigs and Republicans, which will be the last part in the series on the politics in California. We'll see you next time.